All right, well, welcome, guys. Happy Easter. I'm glad that you could be here with us as we celebrate the resurrection of our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a big time, but this is not the only time we think about the resurrection, is it? It shouldn't be. Right? So often we make it about a day, we make it about an event, we expect there to be a lot of fanfare and everything, but it kind of misses the point. It's like, you know what? This means everything. This is not something. This is everything. And I hope you see that in our text this morning. Uh, this Easter sermon, I'm going to be preaching out of the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. That's page eight, or 946 in the Bibles there in the chairs. And I'd encourage you to turn with me there. Again, that's Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. It says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one confesses and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Now this is a familiar passage to many. It's one that's often used as we seek to explain the good news of Jesus Christ to those who don't know Him. And, and it's great for that. It teaches us about how near the gospel is to us, how available it is to us. But it's also one of those passages that leads to an oversimplification of the idea of faith for many. Now, my goal this morning is to clarify as well as I can what Paul means in verse 9 when he says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this needs clarification because there are millions who profess to be Christians. And maybe all of us here, but our lives look a bit different. Right? This claim doesn't match. I mean, we all claim it to be true, but our lives don't reflect that same sort of confession. This needs to be clarified because Satan believes that God raised Jesus from the dead. And Satan's not saved. This needs to be clarified because Satan believes that Jesus is Lord. But Satan is not saved. Time after time you see in Scripture where Satan's cohorts, the demons, are confronted by Jesus. And they cry out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You are the Son of God. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Satan and his demons have no doubt about the true identity of Jesus Christ. They know it. They believe it. They know the resurrection happened. They shudder in fear. And yet they're not saved. So there must be more to faith than giving an intellectual assent to the resurrection of Jesus and making an outward confession that Jesus is Lord. Because Satan and the demons did it, and they're not saved. I mean, even Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And so everyone in this room today is faced with the most important question that you will ever face in your life. Who is Jesus? And did God raise Him from the dead? 
Is my acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord and my conviction that God raised him from the dead, is that like Satan's leading to destruction? Or is that like Paul's leading to salvation? That's my prayer that we all leave here today rejoicing in the confidence, knowing deep within our hearts, within our souls, that Jesus is saved, that, or that Jesus is Lord, that He has been raised from the dead, and that we are saved. I don't want us to live under this delusion that if I simply say words and I give a mental assent to the fact that, that God raised Him from the dead, then I can kind of fool myself into believing that I'm saved. I pray that our heads would understand so that our hearts would burn within us and be moved to a saving understanding of this ultimate truth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And by believing in this, in your hearts, you will be saved. And so to do with this, we're going to look at three points from our text. There's the doctrine of the risen Lord, the result of the risen Lord, and the promise of the risen Lord. First, Paul teaches us about the doctrine of the risen Lord. Now, this is a bad word in in our culture today. People don't like the word doctrine. It seems bad. It seems mean. It seems, I don't know, self-righteous. But doctrine simply means teaching. That's all that it means, right? Doctrine is teaching. Anytime you see teaching in the Bible, that's doctrine. Anytime you see doctrine in the Bible, that's teaching. And here's the thing. If you advocate any or or teach on any standard of ideas, whether they be principles or policies or positions, you are indoctrinating those who are listening to you. You realize that, okay? There's doctrine in philosophy. There's doctrine in history. There's doctrine in science. There's doctrine in politics. Anytime there's a communicated standard of ideas... Any types of principles, any policies, any, any positions that are communicated, this is doctrine. The reality is, whatever circle you run in, right, whoever you consider to be your people, right, your group, your clique, your subculture, whatever that is, if they are communicating expectations, if they have certain values, if there are clearly stated views and opinions, if there are rules, either spoken or unspoken, that govern that group, in that case, you have doctrine. You are indoctrinated. Okay? So it's not a bad word. It's okay. Doctrine simply means teaching. Now that's a freebie. Okay? Now let's look at the text. The reason why I say that is because this text is found within 11 chapters of doctrine. Right? Romans 1 through 11 is Paul's theology. It's what he understands, what he believes, what he teaches about God and about man and about Christ and about the Christian life. Paul, if you've read Romans 1 through 11, obviously cares about doctrine. In the first three chapters, Paul clearly teaches us that God has revealed himself and his perfect character through both his word and through creation. But what you see in chapter 1 is that people didn't want it. They rejected God. They suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and worshipped and served the created rather than the creator. They rejected him. They turned away from him. They served other things and they gladly placed themselves under his just and perfect wrath. Paul then taught them that no matter how good they are or how good they appear to be or no matter who they run with, 
what type of people they connect themselves to. They cannot meet God's standards through trying to live a good life or performing religious deeds. It's not enough. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you do. None of that can meet God's perfect standard, which is himself. He says that no one is righteous. No, not one. But then he tells us some wonderful news. He says, but praise God that that righteousness can actually be attained by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ apart from our works. It's not about who you know. It's not about who you are. It's not about what you do. It's about Christ. Through faith in Christ, believers now have peace with God. They now have grace so that they can triumph over sin and actually walk in obedience. Believers can have peace with God. They, they are given the Holy Spirit so that they can please God and they become children of God, living in the hope that, that they can have unstoppable, everlasting, eternal love from God. Nothing can take it away. Nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And this is not something that we do. This is not something that we attain. This is not by our own efforts or by our own choice. This is resulting from God's sovereign grace towards us. This grace however, includes means. God doesn't just treat us as robots doing this and doing that. He includes us into His plan. God works in us, and then He calls us to respond to His truth. And that's where we find ourselves in this text, okay? I've just provided you the cliff notes from chapter 1 through chapter 10, verse 8, okay? I encourage you to go read it sometime. It's good stuff. So we find ourselves here in verse 9 where it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The reality is each one of us are called to respond to the grace that we have received. We are called to respond to the truth of God. We must confess. We must believe. And this is an action of response. Okay, This is more than just saying some words. This is, this is something much bigger. This doesn't just happen at one point in our lives. This is every moment of every day. We are to confess in our actions, in everything that we do, that Jesus is Lord. That's what it means to have faith. We are called to confess Jesus as Lord. This is not a doctrine that's particular to Paul. He didn't come up with this. This is one of the earliest Christian confessions. This is doctrine. This is the, one of the church's statements of faith. Jesus is Lord. Okay? The Apostle Thomas, in, in touching the resurrected Jesus, responds in worship by saying, My Lord and my God. He worships the resurrected Christ. And from there, this confession is picked up by the church. With these words, the first Christians were baptized. And with these words on their lips, the first martyrs gave their lives for the cause of Christ. This is no simple statement. These are not just three simple words. This is a statement of faith. Paul is quoting one of the earliest, if not the earliest, doctrines. One of the earliest beliefs that the church held to. Jesus is Lord. But again, Paul is not simply calling us here to repeat a few words. 
Like that's all that really matters. In order for you to be Christian, all you got to say is Jesus is Lord. That's all that it takes. Right? He tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now what he doesn't mean is that you can't just say the words, because everybody can say the words. What he means is like you can't truly mean the words. You can't truly believe the words unless God has first worked in you. That he has given his Holy Spirit to you so that you can respond and say those words out of faith. That's what he's saying. God must first work in you before you can truly respond with a public profession of faith that Jesus is Lord. And this is consistent with the first nine chapters in Romans. Now, the reality is we can give lip service to this idea. Yeah, we, we kind of, we could say Jesus is Lord, but it's kind of like saying, hey, yes, sir. Yes, your honor, sir. Jesus, your Lord. You know, and, and treat it like that. Just like he's some sort of respected figure that we kind of have to half-heartedly pay attention to. Right? I mean, if we looked honestly at our lives, we'd recognize there's plenty of times where we do it. There's plenty of times where I do it. Just kind of treating him as a respected figure rather than who he is. But what Paul says next challenges the very idea of that. He says not only do we confess that Jesus is Lord, we must also believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. All right? Paul treats the lordship of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as inseparable and indistinguishable facts. Okay? They are the Jesus' lordship and his resurrection are inextricably linked. You can't separate them out. You can't call Jesus Lord and not believe in his resurrection. You can't believe in his resurrection and not live as if Jesus is your Lord. You can't separate those two out. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 tells us that through the resurrection that Jesus was proclaimed by the power of the Holy Spirit to be the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so to be Lord means to be God. He's taking the very name of the of God, the Father, upon Himself. Jesus is Lord. That means that Jesus is divine. And the resurrection proves that. It proves that Jesus is God. Because who has the authority to cause the dead to raise to life again other than God? God alone has that power. God alone has that ability. And yet Jesus says in John chapter 10, I have the power to lay my life down. And I have the authority to take it up again. In the resurrection, Jesus proves himself to be Lord. And not only is Christ's lordship and resurrection inseparable, but the resurrection gives confirmation of salvation. In rising, Jesus triumphed over death, the punishment of sin. He defeated Satan and the power that sin has over us. His resurrection proves that God is satisfied with His sacrifice. And there's no longer any, any penalty to be paid. The idea of purgatory is just crazy. Because Christ has paid it. The sacrifice has been completed. Now kids taking notes, listen up. Okay? Jesus' resurrection proves that He was a propitiation. Right? That He was a sacrifice... To satisfy God's wrath for sin. So I want you to take that and go tell Jim about it after the service, alright? Get some fruit snacks, alright? There you go. Jim's favorite word. But John Calvin says it this way. He says, Christ, by rising again, 
completed the whole work of our salvation. For through redemption and uh, for though redemption and satisfaction were affected by his death, through which we are reconciled to God, yet the victory over sin and death and Satan was attained by his resurrection. And hence also came righteousness, newness of life, and the hope of a blessed immortality. And thus is the resurrection alone often set before us as the assurance of our salvation. It may be added that Paul required not merely an historical faith, but he makes the resurrection itself its end. For we must remember the purpose for which Christ rose again. It was the Father's design in raising him to restore us all to life. Romans chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 4, they all guarantee that all will be raised one day because the Lord Jesus has been raised. Romans 14.9 argues that for this end, Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. That He might be Lord over all. And so you see, in rising, Jesus triumphed over death, over every power and dominion and authority that could be named. He proved Himself to be the Son of God. He satisfied God's wrath for our sin. He guarantees that all will be raised and stand before Him in judgment. That's the doctrine of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the doctrine. Our knowledge that Jesus saves us, that Jesus comes first, that Jesus shares the divine nature, is based upon the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus cannot be understood just in terms of God's bringing a body, Jesus' body, back to life. It is far more than that. In the resurrection Jesus of Jesus, God upset the entire world's order. He turned it on its head. He made Jesus Lord over all. And listen to me, this cannot be limited by human choice. This cannot be limited to the individual soul of the believer. This cannot be limited to the church, the collective of God's people. He is Lord over all. That means all powers, all dominions, all authorities, absolutely all of everything. Everything. That's the extent of His Lordship that is confirmed in the resurrection. This is far more than a confession of lip service. Jesus is Lord. And He's Lord over all. By now, I hope you can see the weight of this statement. Okay, We can't simply say, Jesus is Lord. Like That doesn't mean anything. To believe that Jesus is the risen Lord, it changes everything. Absolutely everything. Now, remember, Paul is speaking to the Romans here. And just out of a practical example of how this works out, for a Roman to say that Jesus is Lord means for a Roman to say that Caesar is not. Do you know what that means for a Roman? Execution. That's what that means. And it happened over and over and over again. There's an account of one early church father, Polycarp, who was an old man, 
leader in the church. He was confronted with this idea. He had to make the choice, is Jesus Lord or will I say, and not even mean, that Caesar is Lord? Alright? He was brought in trial before a Roman proconsul. And that proconsul, he said, listen, consider your age. You are an old man. Just say Caesar's Lord. That's all you have to say. Just say that Caesar is Lord and we will not kill you. But Polycarp said this in response. He said, for 86 years I have served Christ and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? And so they led him out to the public square and they tied him to a stake and they burned him alive. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord. Polycarp understood for Jesus to be Lord, it means that Jesus must be first, even if it costs him everything. Jesus is Lord means that Jesus is first, that he is above everything else, that he is above every power, that he is above every form of government, that he is above death that He is above your family, that He is above every single desire that you may have, whether it be money or sex or power or success or security or popularity. It means putting Him first above yourself. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord. He is Lord over everything. And you can say it all you want, but do you mean it? That's the doctrine of the risen Lord. But it's not just a belief statement. Second, verse 10 teaches us the result of the risen Lord. Verse 10 continues, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now when these words are taken on their own, they sound really simple. And in one sense they are, because the Word of God is that near to you. The Gospel is that available to you. But to understand the full meaning of believing your hearts and confess with your mouth, again, you have to understand all of Romans. You can't take this by itself. These are the means by which God enacts our salvation, but they are not the root cause. You have to understand Romans 1 through 9 for that. Salvation is God's work. This is God's plan. But in His wisdom, He includes our activity. Now, belief and confession should not be seen as two separate actions. They are two sides of the same coin. Faith is not this blind head nod to Jesus. Just like, yep, I, I, I kind of believe Jesus is Lord, just I, like I believe that there's a planet called Neptune, even though I can't see it. Right? It doesn't change me in any way. Saving faith is a deep, inward trust in Christ at the core of your very being, in your heart. It is depending on Him. It is looking to Him. It is hoping in Him. It is trusting Him. It is loving Him. Confession is not simply praying a prayer and saying some words. It's more than that. Confession is the outward demonstration or manifestation of an inward change, of an inward response. Confession is the continual outward display of an inward faith. Sure, we do it publicly. Sure, we do it at different points of our lives. But our lives should demonstrate this fact that we confess, that we believe that Jesus is Lord and God raised Him from the dead. And that changes everything. 
And you can't have one without the other. Belief of the heart is the crucial requirement. But it will always manifest itself in outward confession. This is huge because more often than not, we kind of treat it as an either-or. Like you can have one without the other. Either I only need to make a public profession of my faith, right? I could just go forward, I can pray a prayer, I can be baptized, and I could just try to be a good person and that's it. That's all it means to, to be saved. We treat it like that. Or we say to ourselves, you know what, I just need to have an inward faith, right? It's not really about what other people know or how other people see it. As long as I know that it's here, inside me, that's all that really matters. That I've got this deep inward faith. Both of those are nonsense. Faith is likened to a fire. You can't have light and heat without a flame. Right? And you can't have a flame without it producing light and heat. It takes both. There's no such thing as a true confession apart from faith, and there's no inward faith without outward confession. It's that simple. An outward confession without... An eternal burning is only lip service. Professing to have a flame without displaying it is at best smothers it, if it was ever there at all. So what are you trusting in? Do you think that you are saved because when you were 10 years old, you went forward, you prayed a prayer, you talked to the pastor, they, they dunked you in some water, you know? Are you trusting in the fact that you perform religious duties every once in a while? You show up to church... On Sunday from time to time, you know, you try to live a good life, be a law-abiding, moral citizen. Is that what you're trusting in? Because if you are, you're trusting in yourself. You're trusting in your works. You're not trusting in the Lord. Or are you at the other end? Basically, you believe that you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. You may read the Bible, you may pray, but you're afraid to make a public profession of your faith. You're afraid to give that outward demonstration. You're afraid to confess that Jesus is Lord to the watching world. And if you came into contact with anybody that knows you, at whatever level, whether it be a coworker or a friend or a classmate or a family member, you know, they, they wouldn't know. They wouldn't know that you're a believer in Christ. It doesn't have any impact on you. A true saving faith is both inward and outward in nature. Here's the thing. Here's why we fall into one of those two categories. We fail to marvel at the gospel. We fail to understand and comprehend and delight ourselves in what God has done. We fail to recognize the fact that God created everything. This good and holy and perfect God created the universe. He created it good. And that everything that you have and everything that you are, your very life, your very breath, the heartbeat that you have just beat, the breath that you have just taken is a gift from Him. You owe it to Him. And He created this universe good. He created man, not because He needed man, but because man needed God. That he could enjoy God. That he could have fellowship with God. That he could love God. That he could walk with God. But man wasn't content with that. Man turned away from him. Adam and Eve thought it was better to be like God. 
to try to live their lives without him. As if this is their world and their God. And so they, they sinned against him. They rejected him. They gladly and willfully placed themselves under his just and holy wrath. But even in that, even though they rejected God, do you notice that he's still gracious and kind? God has every right to end it right there. That's when it should have ended. But it didn't. God gave them grace. But nevertheless, the world was affected by it. Everything has come under corruption because of sin. The sorrow that you have experienced in your life, the hardship you have endured, the pain, right? The difficulty, the toil, all the hurt feelings that you have are a result of the fall. Sickness, death, all of that is a consequence of the fact that we have tried to live our lives without Him. That we have tried to live as if this is my world and I'm God. And you have experienced this in your lives, guys. Right? Every one of us have had this sneaking notion that there is a sense of right and wrong. And that we've all rejected it. And that when we have rejected that, when we have gone against what we understand to be right and wrong, we have felt shame. Inward shame because we know that we have gone against some perfect standard. Don't know what it is, but I've gone against some perfect standard. That's God. And that's the nature of sin. You see, we've all chosen death. We've all chosen to try to live without God. Right? We've all chosen to live as if this is my world and I'm God. As if I know better. We've all done it. We've placed ourselves under His wrath. And again, it should end there. That's the reality of humankind. That's the reality of you and me. But God in His grace didn't allow it to end there. <laughs> he sent Christ to take on flesh, to live the life that you and I could never live, to live a perfectly obedient life, and then to lay that life down as a sacrifice by dying on the cross for sin. He took that on Himself. He did that. What we could never do, what you and I could never do, not by decisions, not by trying to live a good life, no matter how good we are or we think we are, He did what we could not, what we could never do. And then three days later, He rose from the grave again. It's something we can never do in order to prove that God's wrath against our sin has been satisfied. And there is hope of reconciliation. There is hope that we can be reunited with God. That that will exist for all eternity. That each person will stand before Him in judgment. This is a guarantee. It happened. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You're not good enough. But Christ is. He did it. He is Lord and Judge of all. And one day, everyone who has died and those who are still living will stand before Him in judgment. And those who have continued to refuse Him, to trust in themselves rather than in Him, they will be condemned. But those who have believed in their hearts that God has raised Him from the dead, and they have truly confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord over all, they will be saved. They will be saved. Eternally reconciled to God. Friends, that truth ought to change you. That ought to have some sort of impact on you. You can't do it. 
You are in desperate need of help. That ought to burn within your soul. Believing this truth is powerful. As Paul goes on and he says that truly believing in your hearts results in righteousness. Not that you are somehow righteous at that point, but that Christ takes your sin upon himself. And when God looks at you, regardless of your past, regardless of who you are or where you came from and what you have done, he sees the righteousness of Christ applied to you. That is now yours. He doesn't see you as individuals. He sees Christ's righteousness. That is what's gained. When you confess with your mouth, believing that Jesus is Lord, then you are now saved. You are now no longer a slave to sin under the wrath of God. Because of the death and resurrection of Christ, you now walk in the newness of life. You are freed to love God. You are freed to follow God. You are freed to enjoy God. You are freed to obey God. Death and punishment is no longer the end because of Christ's death and resurrection. You have the hope of eternal life with God. These are the effects of a true and saving faith in Christ. This isn't the result of a prayer or a decision as if we can demean it to that. This is the act of God's grace in your life, and this is tremendous. How could you not rejoice at the hope of this? Friends, it ought to burn deep within your soul. And when it does, you gladly make the profession. (laughs) You gladly confess. You believe. You're changed. You want to. You're not concerned about yourself anymore. But you want to see Christ glorified. Friends, confessing that Jesus is Lord is so much more than just a bare notion of intellectually tipping your hat to God. Saying, no, but I got this. It's about me. I made the decision. Look at me. This is tremendous. Do you feel it? He has done what we could not. And because of Him, we are now reconciled to God. Friends, that is the difference between the beliefs of Satan and the faith of the saints. There's flame and light and heat. So do you long for the risen Christ? And if not, you need to ask yourself what's holding you back. What's keeping you from that? What is it in your life that hinders you from loving and seeking the risen Christ? Do you really see your need of Him? Why is your heart not stirred when thinking about the result of His completed work? Perhaps your struggle can be answered in the third point, the promise of the risen Lord. Verse 11 is actually a quote of Isaiah 28, verse 16. For the scripture says, everyone, regardless of your past, regardless of who you are, regardless of your your race, ethnicity, your money that you have in the bank, it doesn't matter who you are, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now Paul has already alluded to this passage in chapter 9, verse 33, where he tells us that Christ is the promised cornerstone that he is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. 
And many struggle with this idea of Jesus, right? Especially regarding his resurrection. That seems unscientific. Like, how could I hold to that? Others find him offensive. The idea that God would require a blood sacrifice of a divine human being in order to pay the penalty for our sin just sounds disgusting and repulsive. Right? No matter how hard they try, they can't accept their need of the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. This unbelief does not coincide with faith. Okay, We can't say that we have faith and still struggle with these things. Like We can have doubts. We can have questions. But we immediately we always come back to the truth. But if you find yourself in the other one, you just need to know this is unbelief. And call it what it is. It's the only way to move on. But Paul mentions this passage in Isaiah to help us to understand. With Jesus' sacrifice and his resurrection was always part of God's plan. It was always part of it. See, Isaiah, he had prophesied 600 years earlier that Jesus was this sure foundation, that Jesus was this cornerstone. This has always been a part of God's plan. He knows what he's doing. And are you really going to question the wisdom of the God who upholds the universe by the word of his power? Are you really going to question the God who has given you life? The God that allows you right now to draw breath and to allow your heart to continue to beat. Really? Are we that vain? I don't think so. But maybe you wouldn't consider yourself to be offended by Christ. You wouldn't say that you're stumbling over the gospel, but you just might be afraid. And I understand that. You might be in doubt. You might, but, but to this, Paul says that everyone, no matter who you are, no matter your past, it doesn't matter what sins you've committed, what hardships you faced, it doesn't matter who you are. If you believe in Him, you will not be put to shame. It's a guarantee. It doesn't mean that you won't experience shame when you profess Christ and somebody ridicules you. No, this is an end-time shame. This is, you will be vindicated. This means that every day when, when everyone stands, or one day when everyone stands before the Lord, you will be vindicated. You will not be put to shame. Those who condemn Christ, who reject Christ, who hate Christ, they will be condemned. They will be humiliated, but you will be vindicated. It will be proven without a shadow of a doubt to be true. And so don't be afraid. God will do what He has promised. Have faith in Him. There is an eternal, living, imperishable, undefiled, unfading hope. And it's Jesus Christ. John Piper says it this way. The meaning of the resurrection is that God is for us. He aims to close ranks with us. He aims to overcome all our sense of abandonment and alienation. The resurrection of Jesus is God's declaration to Israel and to the world that we cannot work our way to glory, but that He intends to do what is impossible to get us there. 
The resurrection is the promise of God that all who trust in Jesus will be the beneficiaries of God's power to lead us in paths of righteousness and through the valley of death. And in its end, the reward that we have is that our us in our resurrected bodies will look upon the risen Lord and be changed to be like him for we shall see him as he is and so you see believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead is so much more than accepting a fact this is more than a bare notion this means being confident that God is for you That God has sought you. That God has drawn near to you. That He is transforming you. And that He will save you for eternal joy. Believing in the resurrection means trusting in all the promises of life and hope and righteousness in which it stands. Those that are yours in Christ alone. This means being confident in God's power that... And love that no fear of worldly loss nor greed for worldly gain will allure you and tempt you to disobey His will. That is the difference between Satan and the saints. May God, by His grace, help us to love Him and to rest in the resurrection of His Son. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that you open our eyes to this glorious and wonderful truth that Jesus is the risen Lord. God, may we be moved. May we be inflamed. May we be transformed by what this has accomplished. That you who created everything and are Lord over everything have taken on flesh to do what we could not. To sacrifice Your good and perfect Son. And that He rose again to prove that though we have rejected You, that we have tried to live our lives without You, that we can now be reconciled to You. God, I pray for those who are here. Some of them I don't know where they're at, but You do. And may your grace be at work in their lives to change them. I pray that they would see their need of you and that they would respond by confessing with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and by believing in the heart that you have raised him from the dead. Now, this is your work. I pray that by the power of your spirit it will be done. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.